All right, Exodus chapter 3 tonight, as we continue to work our way through the book of Exodus. Last week we had a chance to see um, early on how God protected Moses. And as we summed up chapter 2 in the book of Exodus, we found the children of Israel crying out to the Lord. If you'll notice in Exodus 2, verse 23, it says this, Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, that's the Pharaoh, and the sons of Israel sighed, he died, they sighed, because of the bondage. And they cried out, And I want you to notice that their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. And so God heard, verse 24, their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is a key uh, text right there. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. And so now the story will transition and the camera will pan to the wilderness where Moses is now and where he has been hanging out with this new life that he has and a new wife that he has. And I want you to notice that God has now made uh, Moses a shepherd. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 3, now Moses was pastoring and the idea there is to tend or feed a flock or generally to rule or lead a flock. Moses was pastoring there the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and he came to Horeb, the mount or the mountain of God. Now, I want you to see that God is setting up this whole scene and what's happening is that the, the children of Israel are still in bondage and even though Moses is in a new place and he has a new life and we're going to see that Moses has become quite comfortable with his life the children of Israel are still groaning and they're still sighing and they're still in bondage even though Moses is in relative freedom right now and he's got this new life the, the people of God, his kin uh, are back there and they're still suffering And God's now going to speak to a man who has become a shepherd. And it just reminds me of David's call. You know, David was called from shepherding the sheep. And when God reminded uh, David what he had done in his life, he said, I called you from shepherding sheep and I caused you to be the shepherd of my people or to lead my people. And much the same way, Moses is leading a flock of sheep, but now he's going to be pastoring the flock of God. This is a significant sign, if you will, of things to come. And you'll remember that in the New Testament, the Bible says that Jesus is the good shepherd, John 10, 11. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus says in John 27 and 28, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So the Bible paints a picture of the Lord as the good shepherd. As a matter of fact, the psalm that uh, Barrett mentioned, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me, he guides me, and you know how the rest of the psalm goes. So the shepherd was leading a flock, but Moses was being prepared for a much greater task. It reminds me that we need to be faithful in the small things and God will give us bigger things. Now this mount of God that uh, Moses is in this area called Horeb, is a uh, mountain that is, has an alternate name of Mount Sinai. 
And literally, Horeb means a desolate place. And so if you uh, want to write in your Bible, if you'd like to take notes, Horeb, Mount Horeb can be simply put as Mount Sinai. This is located in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula, the mountain of God. And even though it's a desolate place, Moses is about to come upon the incredible presence of God. And it just reminds me tonight that if you feel sometimes that you're in a desolate place, you're never alone where God is. And so if God is there, it is not desolate, no matter what the surroundings might be, no matter how you may feel about your circumstances tonight. If God's there, we can't call it a desolate place. As a matter of fact, we'll call it a holy place. Now, something incredible happens as Moses is probably in the everyday routine of shepherding the flock of sheep because the angel of the Lord, verse 2, and if you'd like to take notes in your Bible, literally this means the messenger of Yahweh. And it says he appeared to him in a blazing fire. Oftentimes, when we look at the Bible and study the Bible, most conservative scholars agree that whenever you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what's interesting about this is that as we unfold this story a little bit, we're going to see that God's going to describe who he is. He's going to say that he's the great I am. And I'm going to take you to a text where Jesus says that he is I am. And the Jews immediately knew what he was talking about. And just to wet your whistle a little bit, when Jesus was alive and on the earth, many people were using the Septuagint. And that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament completed about 125 years before Jesus was born. So you had a version of the Old Testament that was written in Greek. And in the major passages where God uses the name I am, he uses the phrase ego eimi. And in that passage in John chapter 8, when Jesus says before Abraham was I am, he uses the exact same language. And the idea is that he would have been quoting directly from a uh, modern translation of the time. It would be like him quoting the name of God out of the NIV. It'd be something similar to that. That's exactly what Jesus did. And that's why the Jews wanted to take up the stones to stone him. Because he was saying, I'm going to take the name of God Almighty. So the angel of the Lord literally here, the messenger of Yahweh, is there in the blazing fire, in the midst of a bush. And Moses looked, he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Now there's a lot of things that you can look at in terms of bushes in Israel or Sinai in this case and and different ways to analyze the meaning of this. But the idea of the bush is that it is some sort of thorn bush. And uh, we don't know exactly all the details of what's going on, but we do know that when Moses looks, he sees fire in the midst of a bush, but there's something unique. When you see a bush on fire, what you will conclude is that that bush is eventually going to burn and be consumed away. But the unique thing about this particular sight that Moses sees is that he sees a bush on fire, but it's not being consumed. There's something else going on here. And what's interesting is that when you... See um, the angel of the Lord moving throughout the Old Testament. You will see him appear uh, in kind of the situation that the people are involved in. For example, when you think of Genesis 18 and you think of Abraham and Sarai, he appears as a traveler traveling along and stops at their tent for a meal. Do you remember that? The Lord's with the two angels. You remember in the book of Joshua, 
when Joshua is supposed to cross the Jordan River and he is supposed to take on uh, the, the area of Canaan and he has to deal with the great wall of Jericho and he sees the angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord appears this time as the captain of the army of the Lord or the host of the Lord and he remember he's brandishing a sword and remember Joshua's question are you for us or against us and the Lord says as the leader of the or the captain of the host of the Lord I have now come and so then Joshua proceeds to him and the scene as the scene unfolds the Lord the captain of the host of the army says hey take off your shoes Joshua you're standing on holy ground but I want you to notice in Abraham's case he's a traveler in Joshua's case he's a leader of an army and in Moses's case in the wilderness he's a burning bush and this is kind of incredible it's a it's an in- intriguing thing about the Lord Uh, Many people have said that his name implies he can be whatever we need him to be. I sometimes, as one who leads towards being a theologian, think that's a little loose because I don't want that to have a new age feel to it. Whatever God wants you to be, zap, you know, he's your great bellhop in the sky. I don't think that's the meaning. But I think the meaning is that God will be there for you and he'll be exactly what he wants you to convey to you. And in this case, you have a bush burning that's not consumed. Now, you might ask... But what does, what's the implication? What's the message that the Lord's trying to get across? Well, when you look at fire and you look at the imagery of fire, whenever something's on fire, it typically is consumed. And if you think about what's happening back in Egypt with the people of Israel is that they are in the refiner's fire. They are under the whip of the taskmaster. They are crying and and groaning and crying out to God for deliverance. They're in the midst of the fire. Now, sometimes we would argue that the fire is, if not caused by God, is certainly used by God to refine us. So we know in some sense they're in the refiner's fire. And although they're on fire, I think what God's trying to send a message to Moses and then eventually to the people of Israel is that you will not be consumed. You may be going through the fire, but you're not going to perish. And I think that's a, that's a message for us tonight. Because I think the message is, if you love me, if you're called by my name, if you place your faith in me, you may go through fires, but you're not going to be consumed because I'm going to deliver you. And I think that's probably what's going on here in the burning bush. There's a bush on fire, but it's not consumed. And incredibly, when you think about it, uh, God, it says in Hebrews 12, 29, is a consuming fire. And it says that God is going to consume all of his adversaries. So the idea is that if you are one of God's chosen, if you're one of his people, you may go through the fire, but you will not be consumed. But if you are not with the Lord, if you're not covered or in Christ, covered by the blood in Jesus Christ, then you will be consumed. As a matter of fact, if you want to just listen to this particular passage, it's 2 Thessalonians 1, and let me uh, read, just for sake of time, verses 6 through 10. It says this. It says, uh, part of verse 5, Uh, Let me go to verse 5. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these, those who don't know God, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So when the Lord comes again, he's going to come in blazing fire. He's going to consume his adversaries. But if you're in Jesus Christ, you may go through the fire of tribulation. You may go through the fire of persecution, but you will not be consumed. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 10, don't fear him who can kill the body and after this he has no power of you. I'll tell you who you should fear. Fear the one who can destroy your your soul and cast it into the deepest part of hell. That's the one you should fear. Don't fear somebody who can just kill your body because your soul is going to live on. And the idea here is that if we don't trust in the Lord, all we have is a terrifying expectation of judgment. Hebrews uh, 10.27 says, And the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. And then he says later in that chapter, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is also kind of a prefigurement of the fact that when God uh, deals with his children, they may be go th- going through the refiner's fire and not consume, but Egypt is about to experience a fire that they can't even imagine. They think all of their deity and, and false gods are going to protect them. They think the Nile God and all these other gods are going to help them. But when God comes and says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And he deals with the Egyptian bondage and every whip and crack that uh, happened to his people. He's going to come in his fury. And it's not going to be a pretty thing to be against the Lord. And it certainly won't be when the end comes as well. Now when the Lord saw, verse 4, that... Moses, or he, had turned aside to look. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Now, I'm not sure about the calling of Moses' name twice. I, I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know if, you know, sometimes it's just our heart. The fact that we're hard of hearing sometimes takes <laughs> a little bit. I know guys are this way. It takes at least two times to get our attention. And Moses is a guy. But anyway, Moses responds, here I am. Now, it must have been something, first of all, to see a bush that's on fire and in some uh, sense resonating with the glory of God, but then to hear a voice come from this bush must have been radical. And I don't know what Moses was doing at this point, but uh, he responds, he says, I'm here. And he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, the reason that it's holy ground is not because there's something special about the mountain or special about if this is an actual bush that's sitting there. The reason it's holy ground is because God's there. And wherever God is, it's holy ground. And so uh, Moses is instructed, take the shoes uh, off of your feet for where you're standing is holy ground. And this is certainly something that points to the holiness of God and that God is not to be trifled with. God is... Uh, as I mentioned earlier, a consuming fire. And though he loves us, he is holy. And we've talked about in other messages on Sundays that uh, to see the full glory of God uh, in our human condition right now would kill us. That's how incredible God is. I mean, just think about how God made the world and how he created the human body and how he put all of the sun, moon, and stars in place and the universe that we haven't even begun to really uh, understand or, or even discover and you understand that God is incredible. Have you ever just uh, stood on the seashore and looked at the ocean and looked at the vastness of the ocean thought to yourself, my God made that. 
And that's just a small little sample of his incredible power. And so Moses is coming upon the creator of the universe. And what's incredible is that the creator of the universe wants to use Moses. And so as this unfolds in verse 6, he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. Now notice the repetition of the promise here to the patriarchs. The God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Now later in Moses' life, we know that he wanted to see God's glory. Remember a little bit later in the book of Exodus, chapter 33, he says, Lord, show me your glory. God said, nobody can see my face and live. Well, this, at this juncture of Moses' life, he realizes the incredible experience that he's having. He's in the presence of Almighty God. God's speaking to him directly. God's manifesting his glory, and Moses is afraid to look. And can you put yourself in Moses's? Uh, now he's not wearing his sandals right now, but can you put yourself in his position and imagine yourself being there? And imagine that the voice of God is booming towards you. What would you do? Would you be afraid to look? Would you wonder, am I going to walk away from this? I mean, I think you would sense the incredible power of the moment and the holiness of God. Well, I think Moses did something that was very natural. He hid his face and the Lord said, verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. That's a part of the Bible that I've highlighted because it reminds me that God is aware of my suffering. And uh, not that I can say that I've suffered a lot, but as a pastor, I do deal with a lot of suffering. And the one thing I can encourage people about who know Christ is that God is there. And you may not even feel him or sense him, but he's still there. And I can tell you that on the authority of the word of God because he says he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And so God says, look, I see what's going on. I know my people are suffering and I'm aware of it. And so I have come down to deliver. The NIV says to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land. It interests me what Barrett was saying about the friend who made the threat to him when he was there in prison because sometimes we look at our quote-unquote enemies or we look at the obstacles or the giants in our life and we think, how in the world can I overcome that? And God even describes the Egyptians that he says that he's come to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. And remember, Egypt is a type of the world. And God says, I'm going to deliver them. I've come down for the specific reason. And this kind of language re reminds us of the incarnation that Jesus, love literally came down to save us, to rescue us from what? From the bondage of the world. Remember I told you there were a lot of types in the book of Exodus? Well, here's a type right here. God says, I'm coming down to rescue. And later on, Jesus would become that baby in Bethlehem and rescue us from the bondage of the world, from Egypt from the taskmasters of sin and bondage. And so he says, from the power of the Egyptians, verse 8, to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land to set them free, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, 
I have seen the oppression. Here's a repetition of what he says, with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. I know what they're going through. I know what it, what it, uh, the sense of their oppression, that they're feeling down and whipped and beaten. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh. Now you wonder, as Moses is listening to this, he might be kind of getting pumped up. Oh yeah, the Lord knows what's going on. He's going to get him. He's going to take care of it. Cool, this is great. I'm going to send you. <laughs> uh, well, what? Now what's interesting is a little bit earlier, we recognize that Moses had a sense of his calling. And remember the book of Acts, when uh, Stephen describes the scene, he says that he hoped, Moses hoped that the, uh, children of Israel would recognize that, that they were going to get deliverance from his hand. But I don't know what's happened in Moses' life because as we uh, see the story unfold, Moses is not too excited about, I'm going to send you. And I think that oftentimes we're not too excited about that either. We always think it'd be good if somebody else took care of that. You know, can somebody else take care of this ministry or can somebody else fight that battle or can somebody else do that? And then God says, no, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to send you. And you say, who am I? I? I don't have the training. I don't have the expertise. I don't. But then we sing the songs in church, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do. Right? Are we just mouthing words when we say that? Here I am, send me, Lord. Are we serious? Do we really believe that God would call me? We always think, ah, oh, it's somebody else. It's the, the professional guy, the guy that's got the theological training, the guy that, wait a minute, God wants to use you. And Moses has been appeared to for a specific reason. He says, Moses, I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and you're going to be my man. You're going to be my ambassador so that you may bring, verse 10, my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. Now this is, it says in another part of the Bible that Moses was the most humble man that was on the face of the earth. And it's interesting, uh, I heard this story about a uh, congregation, uh, their pastor was voted the most humble pastor of the year. And so they, uh, the committee got together, you know, and they gave him the badge and it said, the most humble pastor of the year. And the next Sunday he wore the badge to church and they fired him from his position because you're not supposed to wear the badge that says you're the most humble pastor. But anyway, <laughs> that was a joke. But... Uh, Moses said, who am I? And now you can see that he has a little... You're just getting that now, a <laughs> little uh, hesitation. That I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out. Now, Keith and I had a chance to spend a little bit of time together before the service and we're talking about how Moses may have gotten a little comfortable. And, uh, you know, the first 40 years of his life, he's there in Pharaoh's court, he's getting the education and God's going to use all of that, probably trained in three languages, including Hebrew, so he could write the Pentateuch, the first five books. God knows what he's doing. But now as he's in this uh, land of Midian, now as he's become the shepherd, he's got his wife, uh, all of a sudden, Moses becomes comfortable. And I think that sometimes that's where a lot of Christians are tonight we've become comfortable. We've kind of, you know, we've got the thing down. You know, we go to the certain things that we go to and, and you know, we've got, we've got a Christian walk, but I wonder if we're comfortable. I wonder sometimes if we're too comfortable. You know, one preacher said that his job was to 
comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I think maybe that's what the Word of God does to us often. It's to comfort the afflicted. You come in, you know, your life's been heavy. Maybe you've been away from the Lord and man, you feel the comfort, sometimes conviction, but comfort nonetheless that God loves you and forgives you. But sometimes you come in a little comfortable and you get afflicted and that's good because sometimes we need a little poke, don't we? Sometimes we think, hey, it's the other guy that's going to do it and, says, and God says, no, I've been calling you. I want you to go. You say, but who am I, Lord? I'm not sure. Midian's pretty cool. I sing songs to the sheep at night. I don't know this, Pharaoh. I don't know what's going to happen. What should I do? Well, God says, here's the deal, Mo. I certainly will be with you. Certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Now what kind of sign is that? What do you mean? We're going to worship you. I need a better sign. No, God says, when you come back with the people, you're going to worship me here. You want a sign? I'm guaranteeing your victory. You're going to end up back here and you're going to be worshiping me. That's the sign. Well, is it enough that we say, certainly God is with us? Is that enough? Is God enough? You know, sometimes we think, maybe I need something else. Wait a minute. The presence and power of God's enough. If you stood by yourself and you had people you weren't too sure about, but you had God with you, you are the majority. It's true. Because God has enough power to deal with anybody. So Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel and I shall say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, now God, now Harry gets into the possible objections. You know, have you ever done this before? You know God's telling you to do something, but you say, now what if this? I need more clarity, God. Sometimes I think that's a smokescreen for us. Could you clarify this and then maybe I'll do that? Answer this one. What if they do, what if, we're experts at that, aren't we? Now what if I say to them, or they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Who shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now I mentioned to you that this is a very significant name. Let me just read a little bit from one writer. The name for God points to his self-existence and eternality. It denotes, I am the one who is and will be. You could say it in the book of Revelation, the idea of, of God's powerful name is, I am the one who was, who is, and will be. I am the existent one. I exist all of myself. I am. I never used to be. I never will be. I am, and I always am. That's the name of God. There's no one who made him. You, see, you can't say God was born back. No, I am. He's I am back there. He's I am in the distant past. He's I am now, and he will be I am in the future because he is the existing one. The verb is to be. He is it. He's cornered the market on deity. So if you want to know his name, it's always I am. Back here, I am, I am, I am. I am, and that's all that I am, and Popeye did steal that from the Old Testament. 
In the book of John, that's for those of you who were around when Popeye was going, I am that I am that, and whatever, I am who I am. In the book of John, uh, this is John 8:58. For the sake of time, we won't turn there. I think you're familiar with it. Je- Jesus in conflict with the Jews says, Before Abraham was born, I am. Remember that? And the Jews, John 8:59, took up stones to stone him because they said, <laughs> He's taking the name. They knew exactly what he was saying. Remember, the modern translation of that time was called the Septuagint. And Jesus took the Greek of the Old Testament passage, Egil and me, and said, you want to know who I am? You think, you, you may say to me, wait a minute, you're not even 50 and you say you saw Abraham? I tell you, it's bigger than that, boys. Before Abraham literally sprang into existence, I am. I am the voice of the burning bush. And remember, the burning bush is described, the one who's speaking as the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Incredible. And God furthermore said to Moses, verse 15, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Remember what we just talked about? This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. This is how I am to be known. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Isn't it incredible? The God who's this powerful is concerned about them. This is another verse I underlined. I am indeed concerned about you. And I think the language implies that they were asking the question, does God care? Does he see? People dying around them. The evilness of the oppression of Egypt. And I'm sure after day after day of making bricks and doing the mud dance for the Pharaoh, I'm sure you'd start asking, where are you? We're supposed to be your special people. Do you care? Do you see what's going on? Have you ever had days like that? Do you know what I'm going through? And God says, I am indeed concerned about you. I think that you can grab that promise tonight. I did. I am concerned about you. I see what's being done. When I consider thy heavens... The work of thy fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you do take thought of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? Why do you care about me? God says in 1 Peter 5, 7, Cast all your cares on me because I care for you. God cares for me? Yeah, that's why he saved you. That's why love came down, to rescue you. Because he cares. Because incredibly, this God loves us. And so I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. This is God still talking to the land of the Canaanite, 17, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will pay heed to what you say. And you with the elders of Israel will come to the kingdom of Egypt. And you will say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews has met with us. So now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. 
Now one uh, study Bible that I was reading said that this implies a slap against Egypt. The idea is we can't sacrifice to our God here because your land's so corrupt. We need to go on a three-day journey to sacrifice to our God. A little slap on Egypt. And I think that's probably the right idea here. Let us go. We're going to journey out of here. We're going to go sacrifice to our God. But God says, but I know, verse 19, that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. I'm going to have to make him let you go because he's not going to want to. And Pharaoh, remember, in the book of Exodus is a type of Satan. Egypt is a type of the world and Pharaoh is a type of Satan. And Satan does not want to easily let you go out of his kingdom, does he? He'll fight you. Oftentimes when uh, new believers get saved at the fellowship, we'll talk with them and we'll say, read your Bible, pray, fellowship, tell people about Jesus and be prepared because the onslaught is coming. Lots of times people are told, hey, come to Jesus and everything will be rosy and it'll be cool and you'll... And hey, all those things are there and true, but there is an enemy and he does not want to permit you to go to the promised land. And even after you become a leader, you know, he still tries to turn your eyes back to Egypt, doesn't he? He still wants you to go back to the old taskmasters, those tasks that master you. And so here it is. He's not going to let you go easily. And I think we need to understand tonight that we're in a spiritual battle. And the way we battle against principalities and powers, against Satan's kingdom, is by spiritual weapons, prayer, the word of God, breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith. You guys know them. And so God says, this is how I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to force him. I'm going to stretch out my hand, verse 20, and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will grant this pe people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. In other words, the idea is the Egyptian people will be so convinced that it's time for you to go that they'll give you stuff. Here, take it and go. <laughs> Please. You're God's God. We realize it. Even if Pharaoh won't... You know, you could imagine by the sixth or seventh plague, you know, after you're dealing with frogs and flies and everything else, you'd say, Pharaoh... Right? You'd be sending them emails. Let them go! Please! Well, they're going to give you stuff. You're not going to leave empty-handed. And every woman, verse 22, shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters, and thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Couple of closing scriptures. It says in Psalm 105, 37 and 38, then he brought them out, out with silver and gold. Among his tribes there was not one who was stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the dread of them had fallen upon them. And since Egypt is a type of the world tonight, let me leave you with the promise in 1 John 5, 4 and 5. It says this, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If you want to know how to overcome the world, the temptations, the struggles, the pain, the sorrow, faith. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in him and then live the rest of your life in that grace place. Remember how we talked about that Sunday? Just stay under the dispenser <laughs> and let him keep bringing it and you keep receiving it, keep giving it away.